Welcome to Money in the Air, the music podcast about neighboring rights, the royalties you earn from the public performance of your recordings and the business of music in general. Brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. I'm Andrew, a royalty consultant helping artists to collect on their value. Hi, I'm Gina Deacon. I work for Absolute Rights Management and I work with record labels and artists to ensure we claim the royalty income due to them. I'm Stacey Haber and I'm from Inside Baseball Music Publishing. Hi, I'm Tanya Oliveira. I work for Transparency Entertainment Group. I focus on World X USA neighboring rights on the performer side and rights holder side. Welcome back to Money in the Air, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of enriching our metadata when we deliver recordings to the various CMOs all over the world and what criteria each CMO needs in order to accept a valid registration. I want to talk about what's going on in Spain with AIE. What data points are they looking for and how does this maybe help them with matching, reporting from streaming services, radio stations, those types of things? They pay very well, so we're keen to submit a lot of claims for our artists to them naturally, but they do want a lot of information from you to submit those claims in the first place. Not only do they want the performer details per claim and the number of artists per claim, the roles you've contributed on, the track titles, the versions. They want also track durations, catalogue numbers. They want the genre, and that's mandatory as well, so that can take time. It's easy enough if you're a pop singer and you just exclusively I do pop. And then there's country recording, of course, there's the label. The label name can't be too long because then they reject it. Year of release or year of recording because they can differ, they're both mandatory. And then the number of featured artists is so important and that takes time. I mean, Discogs is great as a resource for that. Some of it is just self-explanatory, like if it's Ed Sheeran, it's one person. But then if it's a band like the Foo Fighters, they've had different iterations over the years, different numbers of guys in them. So you have to just know that or just research it. So with the featured artists, do you have to provide the legal names? I mean, you brought up a really interesting point with the Foo Fighters, how different combinations of a band can change over time. You have to know what iteration, what legal names are associated with each recording at that point. When you sign up to a CMO like uh, AIE or Senna or GVL, Senna and GVL in particular, obviously you sign up with your legal name, the name that matches the ID that you're presenting. But you also have an option to either on the portal or on the, the PDF form, you can put down your pseudonym, your alias, your stage name, whatever you want to call it. And also you can put down the band you were a member of, if it was historic or if it's still ongoing, then you don't select an end date. You just say you join the band on this date and then you keep the end date blank. And then this allows the CMO to start releasing any backdated income that they held. Because if they knew there were five, like there was a band with five members, the fifth one has been missing. And then they see, oh, he or she's just turned up and it matches that's the year they were a member. It's just quicker for them to match royalties and release royalties, but also to save evidence, to save the time on evidence rather. And I'll let Gina talk about that because that's a lot of time. If you're asked for that information at the beginning when you're doing the application, sit and think and make sure you list every single band, like Tanya said, that you've been in and use a pseudonym as well. It may be a little bit of a pain at the beginning to include all that information, but it saves you in the long run because if the international societies don't have details, they don't know who you are, they're going to reject the claim and then you have to go in manually, claim by claim by claim, by the evidence there and then. 
that you are who you say you are. Senna, for example, as well, will link your pseudonym to them, but they want proof from you that you are who you say you are and you're not just claiming on behalf of the band that's done particularly well. So what you need to do is you can just copy a link from online that gives the information and the copy of an album cover, upload it onto the portal, send it over to Senna. They'll check it out. Once they confirm that they're happy with what you state or who you say you state you are, then they will update your account and any future claims that you make will automatically be included for however many number of bands, pseudonyms, etc. that you're you're claiming for. I've only seen about one case that each member receives a percentage of the featured artist share. So generally it's been like the band will receive 100% and then they divvy it out that way. So there's one account. But I have seen at least one case where each band member has an individual claim. And I can't remember at Sound Exchange how that was actually set up. Like what was the name of those featured artists accounts for the individual band members? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because with the AIE repertoire spreadsheet, there's um, a column where you can put the percentage, kind of like with Sound Exchange, only if you're the featured artist, of course, and it doesn't default to 25% if there's four of you. So I thought that was quite interesting. So at least there's an option in Spain. Yeah, maybe your deal is different, you know, in the bonds. Maybe you're an other featured rather than contracted featured because at PPR that's slightly lower. I wish it was just equal always across the board. So if there was three featured artists, everybody's getting 33.33% on it because it's unclear to me if one of them is receiving more than the other. And then when you got a producer involved, is the producer, are they receiving all of it or are they receiving a percentage of at that point? I wish that the CMOs also showed the percentages that was going to each one of the featured artists as well. Like on the composition side with PROs, like they will literally show you total shares. And same thing with the MLC. It's only sound exchange in Spain that do the percentage, I believe, isn't it, Tanya? I don't think there's any others. On your own accord, you can input a percentage and then submit it. Yeah, so at PPL, it's um, there is a percentage, but it's a bit more vague. And it's the fact that 60% goes to the contracted featured artists and then 40% goes to the other and the non-featured. It could be 70, 30 or 60, 40. Um, and then it's a count against how many featured artists, how yeah. many side artists there are, and then it splits evenly. Yes, exactly. If there are like seven of you in the band, because some bands there's loads of people, you know, and there's seven contracted featured artists, and then you hire five studio people as session musicians. I mean, it's just yeah, kind so of the money's just, yeah. In a way, I would kind of prefer that because then it's, it's very obvious, straightforward. Everybody knows what they're getting into. But yeah, you can't negotiate anything. I like what you mentioned about the on the composition side with publishing at PROs. Like, you're right. You log in and you see the splits, as they call it. Like, oh, he or she wrote 20%. They wrote 10%. You know, they wrote the remaining 70%. Everyone sees that. And, and it mm. is the same in theory around the world. And I wonder why in Neighboring Rights that's... Maybe that will happen one day, but obviously on the rights holder side, it's different. You do, you can see percentages at different societies because sometimes, you know, two people share a master at 50-50 or 60-40 and you can see that. And then there's disputes, which Gina knows too much about. <laughs> so many disputes. <laughs> oh, we love disputes. We do not love disputes. But yeah, every society has their own dispute method and we cover that in many podcasts and I'm sure we'll cover them again. But so important, a lot of labels 
don't like working in them. A lot of labels ignore them and that's not the way to resolve them because if you don't get a response, how are you ever going to get clean data? basically. So, you know, don't put it to one side, deal with it. It could work in your favour. There could be a lot of money outstanding against that recording, in which case then stake your claim, state the date that you had the start of that claim from or the end date, and that will then free it up for somebody else. Check in with your local CMO, whether it's SoundExchange, whether it's AIE, whether it's PPL, and see what are their data requirements for them to accept your sound recordings. From that point forward, make sure that you have a catalog, a schedule of everything that you've either recorded on or that you own as a copyright owner. Keep durations, keep ISRC codes, UPCs, anything that they require for valid claims. All this stuff is really useful for the CMOs for the purposes of matching. If they're requiring some type of a field like UPC or duration, it's likely because their sources, radio stations, Pandora, whoever it is, is reporting that information. And so it allows them to match at a higher accuracy to your claims. Remember, if you're not a member of IFR, go to www.iafar.co.uk and join us now.